0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening, everyone. Yeah, you're out there. I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm director of Lifetime Learning in the Alumni and Parent Engagement at the University of Virginia. It's a pleasure to welcome you here this evening. This is a Virginia Festival of the Book program, and the Engaging the Mind um, Public Lecture Series is hosting this event. But it's a it's a real pleasure to work with the Festival of the Book. Their team, and they really do have a team, lots of volunteers, that worked tirelessly for about a year putting together the festival. They have about 200 events over the next five days, and I'm very pleased to say we are kicking off the festival tonight. This is the very first program, so thank you for being with us. The Festival of the Book, like I mentioned, uh, produces about 200 programs. Um, Most of the programs are free of charge. However, there are are lots of expenses. So if you feel um, so fortunate that you might be able to contribute just a little bit to the festival, we ask that you go by the Omni Hotel and uh, make a donation there, or you can also give online. So thank you for doing that. The festival is a program also of the Virginia Foundation for Humanities, who's just celebrated its 40th year. If you would, just take a moment and silence the ringer on your cell phone. We also passed out yellow feedback cards at the end of the program if you'll give us your comments. It really does help the festival in building programs for the, for the following year. This program is being recorded and it will be made available on the Virginia um, uh, Lifetime Learning uh, website, but we'll certainly share it with the Festival of the Book as well. A special thanks to the Jefferson uh, African-American Heritage Center for allowing us in this space tonight for this important conversation. Now, to just talk a little bit about our two speakers for tonight, we have with us Professor Claudrina Harrell. She'll be moderating the conversation tonight and helping us with questions towards the end as well. She is uh, Associate Professor in the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African-American Studies. And she's also with the history department here at the University of Virginia. She teaches black studies, African-American history, and US labor history. And she's carved out just a little time out of her really busy schedule to be with us tonight. Uh, She's actually supposed to be teaching a class right now, but don't tell anyone. We are very fortunate to have with us author and professor Risa Goluboff, um, who will be discussing her new book, Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change, and the Making of the 1960s. Professor Goluboff is uh, with the history department as well and with the law school. And she's the incoming dean for the University of Virginia Law School. Let's pause just a moment to give her applause. A female, a female who will be taking charge come July. She also has affiliations with the Miller Center, the Carter G. Woodson Institute for African American Studies. Um, Any other schools? That's it, okay. She's a busy lady as well. Uh, Her first book was award-winning as well, The Lost Promise of the Civil Rights which was published in 2007. So she's well-published. In 2012, Ms. Goluboff was named Distinguished Lecturer by the Organization of American Historians. In 2011, she received the University of Virginia's All-University Teaching Award. Please help me welcome both of our speakers for tonight, but especially Professor Goluboff. Thank you for being here.
1: Uh, Thank you all for coming, and I want to thank Jane Kulo and the Festival of the Book, and uh, Althea Brooks and the Engaging the Mind series, and the Jefferson School, and Claudrina. It's just a pleasure and an honor uh, to be here, and I'm really excited. So what I thought I would do is I'm going to start talking about the book for a little while, and then Claudrina and I will have a conversation. So I thought I would start by introducing you to a few characters uh, in the book, and then I'll zoom out And tell you about uh, the broader plot uh, of the book, but I think you'll get a little bit of a sense once I tell you about some of these people. The first one is named Isadora Edelman. Wow, this is a high platform. Okay, um, this isn't going to work. Okay, maybe here. Uh, Okay, you can see me, right, and I can see the book. As he did most days, on September 22nd, 1949, Isidore Edelman left his apartment in the Happy Valley neighborhood of Los Angeles and trekked five miles downtown. His destination was Pershing Square. His plan was to spend the day talking. Even among the many characters the park had on frequent display, this soapbox orator stood out. Perhaps it was his presence. Though he was a small, balding, middle-aged man, Edelman's eyes were wide awake, and his smile had more than a little mischief in it. Perhaps it was his perseverance. Day in and day out, park could count on Edelman for education, provocation, and entertainment. Most likely, though, Edelman's fame was due to what he said there in the park at the beginning of the Cold War. Edelman had come to the United States from Russia in 1910 when he was 11 years old. He joined the Communist Party in 1936, but he was expelled in 1947 because, in his words, Quote, I criticized the leadership for waging relentless war against right and left deviationists in its ranks. Close quote. That said, Edelman acknowledged that he remained communist in his thinking. For a year and a half, Edelman had taken his place in the square without incident. For a year and a half, he had preached his personal brand of left politics to warm or at worst indifferent reception. Then trouble began. Whether those who caused that trouble did so because they deemed Edelman a buffoon, an irritant, or a threat, they were not alone in worrying that views like Edelman's could destroy the nation's moral fabric and political security. Edelman's radical notions put many Americans in mind of Soviet power and the Soviet's recent explosion of their first atomic bomb. Who knew what fanatics like Edelman might do? In fact, a year after Edelman's arrest, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg uh, would be arrested and eventually executed for spying for the Soviets. Doing their part to preserve the nation then, self-described patriots began harassing Edelman. They heckled him. They held a red flag over his head while he talked, warning his audience of his political views. They dunked him in the park's fountain, while nearby officers did nothing to respond. Had the officers merely ignored Edelman, he probably would have counted himself lucky. But they went after him, arresting him 63 times in quick succession. Sometimes they brought him to the park office or the central police station only to let him go. That cut short his speeches and added to his arrest record, but at least there wasn't more. Other times he was charged with and convicted of, begging, soliciting funds, distributing handbills. One charge was for defacing a park bench of the thick concrete type by standing on it to make himself heard. Then things got worse, not least because Edelman had begun to rail against the officers themselves. One told him, quote, lay off the police, and the police will lay off you. That was not Isidore Edelman's way. He was an invader against injustice, and in he did. So when, on that hot fall Thursday in September, he made his way to Pershing Square, the police again arrested him. This time, the charge was vagrancy. Among the many sections of the California Vagrancy Law criminalizing wanderers, beggars, drunkards, and the like was Subdivision 5, Section 647 of the California Penal Code, which made a vagrant of anyone who was, quote, lewd or dissolute. The police defined dissolute as lawless. Since Edelman had been arrested before, they deemed him lawless, dissolute, and guilty of vagrancy. All right, so Edelman's case goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court has some trouble with it. They take it initially, and then they dismiss it as improvidently granted, or they dig it, because they're not really sure what to do with it in the early 1950s. So now I'm going to introduce you to someone else, shuffling Sam Thompson, whose nickname will become clear in a minute. In January of 1959, so a decade after Isidore Edelman, Sam Thompson's main goal was staying away from Union bus station in Louisville, Kentucky. This was not an easy task. Thompson lived out of town, and the bus was his ride home. But it seemed that whenever Thompson went to the station, the Louisville police arrested him. So his lawyer, Louis Lusky, told him to stay away. Thompson looked like the kind of man police arrested often. Poor, black, with no steady job, and what appeared to be a drinking problem and a penchant for, quote unquote, perversion. From Thompson's point of view, such attention was misplaced. Sure, he drank. Sometimes in public, but he was no vagrant. He worked odd jobs as a man Friday. He had a place to live, and his modest income easily covered his modest lifestyle. Nonetheless, Thompson's interactions with the police in many ways epitomized the uses of vagrancy laws for their most essential and long standing function policing the visibly poor and unemployed. It was chilly the Saturday night in January 1959 that Thompson was arrested despite his avoidance of the bus station. In order to stay warm while he waited for his bus, Thompson went to a black bar at the corner of Liberty and West Streets. The Liberty End Cafe, I didn't make that up, OK. The Liberty End Cafe was a few blocks from Union Station, just past the heart of the Black Business District on, Wal- on Walnut Street. Thompson was familiar with the area. The youngest of Harry and Liza Thompson's five children, Sam had spent his whole life in Louisville. A reporter would later describe him as, quote, slim, dignified, with direct eyes. Perhaps that dignity was the origin of his original nickname, of preacher. Though Thompson was only 47, years old when his case went to the Supreme Court, observers referred to him as an old man and an elderly Negro. Lusky, Thompson's lawyer, was only a year or so younger, but no one described him as old. Perhaps people portrayed Thompson as old because it made him seem less threatening than a young African-American man, the kind increasingly presumed to be a dangerous criminal. Or perhaps years of hard living had made Thompson old beyond his years. The life expectancy for alcoholics was dramatically lower than for the population at large. In any event, the name of the Liberty Inn Cafe would turn out to be prophetic for Thompson. He arrived there around 7 PM, and it was already crowded. Thompson was shuffling his feet to the jukebox. Maybe the song was Rock and Robin or Split Splash, and chatting with various people in the booths when two white Louisville police officers walked in. When the case goes up to the Supreme Court, there's a long discussion of what his shuffle dance looked like, because the claim was that he wasn't allowed to be dancing in the bar. So hence his nickname, Shuffling Sam Thompson. Regardless, two officers began asking the manager questions about Thompson. The manager said that he had been there around a half an hour and that he had not purchased anything. The officers then approached Thompson and asked what he was doing there. They were skeptical when he told them that he was waiting for the bus to Butchel, the Louisville suburb where he lived. After all, there was no bus stop out front, and Thompson did not have a bus ticket on him. The officers took Thompson outside and told him he was under arrest. Thompson asked why, and according to one of the officers, he became, quote, very argumentative, unquote. So the police added a disorderly conduct charge to the original loitering charge. Thomas's case also went up to the Supreme Court, and though they answered the question in that case and they reversed his convictions for loitering and disorderly conduct, they didn't get to the heart of the question of whether the police could arrest something, someone simply for being who they were or for being in a place where they didn't seem like they belonged. All right, the last people I want to introduce you to I call the pie-baking hippies and their hippie lawyer, Robert Bruce Miller. The pies were the last straw for Robert Bruce Miller. His latest vagrancy clients had been baking pies at 3.30 in the afternoon on an unseasonably hot June day in Boulder, Colorado. That is not what the police expected to find when they knocked on the door of a basement apartment after a tip about illegal activity from a neighbor. For the year was 1968, and the folks baking the pies were hippies. The police who came to the door of the Boulder Hippie Hangout or Hippie Haven were in search of illegal drugs. They had no search warrant, but the young people let them in anyway. Even though the police found no evidence of illegal activity, they arrested several of those hanging around on suspicion of violating narcotics laws. Suspicion of violating, okay. When no drugs or ev- other evidence of illegality only, uh, ever turned up, only pies, the police released everyone but Charles Goldman and John Kirkland. These two they charged under the Colorado State Vagrancy Law, which made a vagrant of, quote, any person able to work and support himself in some honest respectable calling who shall be found loitering or strolling about, frequenting public places or where liquor is sold, begging or leading an idle, immoral, or profligate course of life, or not having any visible means of support. Maybe the police singled out Goldman and Kirkland because they had no identification and no money. Maybe it was because the hippie hangout was not their home. They were only guests there. Perhaps it was that Kirkland was known as STP John after the powerful hallucinogen that had become popular during the summer of love in San Francisco in 1967. If the problem was drugs he seemed a likely target. Or perhaps it was that Goldman and Kirkland were not from around Boulder. The two 19-year-olds were from the Northeast, and they were seen as part of the scourge of hippies who were entering Colorado. In any event, what Bob Miller found at the local jail made him angry. Quote, it was a frontier sort of jail, with the bars and the deputies over there drinking coffee. And they said they were arrested on vagrancy. I said I just had it with vagrancy. Miller was a few years out of the University of Colorado law school, practicing as a criminal defense attorney and isolated as an ACLU lawyer in northern Colorado. Miller would not have described himself as a hippie. But others saw him as the hippie lawyer in his Levi jeans and t-shirts, rather than the more conventional business suit when he was not in court. And even in court, uh, he said, quote, I had this big fro. They were eventually calling me the White Panther as well as the hippie lawyer. Miller, quote, had had it with vagrancy because Goldman and Kirkland were not the first hippies the Boulder police had arrested and the local courts had convicted for the crime. The city had been a magnet for hippies and the counterculture. Vagrancy arrests had played a frequent role in the clash between newcomers and old timers. And Miller had lost, quote, trial after trial, unquote. He recalled, quote, they were arresting all these people for vagrancy and the jails were full. It just made no sense to me. And it was just accepted that that was how it was. So these folks, different as they are, and they're very different, were some of the millions of Americans arrested for vagrancy and loitering. Vagrancy laws, loitering laws, suspicious persons laws, all together I call them vagrancy laws, they had lots of similarities, came to the colonies from medieval and Elizabethan England, and they proliferated all across the states. And in the 1950s, when my story begins, all 50 states criminalized vagrancy. Why was this law, this type of law, so popular? There were two main reasons, two hallmarks of vagrancy laws that made officials find them irresistible. The first, which you may have noticed by now, is that they were status offenses. Most of the time in the United States, you commit a crime by doing a kind of act, right? By committing a certain act, you commit a crime. But vagrancy laws made it a crime to be a certain kind of person. And the police could arrest you just for being that kind of person. And once you've been identified as that person, they could arrest you again and again and again. There are cases about what it meant to be a reformed vagrant or how you would prove that you had reformed yourself, which was not easy to do. The second reason, which you've probably also already noticed, is that vagrancy laws are really vague and flexible. What does it mean to be immoral? What does it mean to be idle? What does it mean to be dissolute or to lack visible means of support? And so for centuries, local officials used these laws to arrest all kinds of people who were out of place, and not just what we would today think of as vagrants, as poor people without homes. They did use vagrancy laws to control the poor and to keep out strangers. They also used them to hold and investigate criminal suspects, to suppress unconventional sexuality, hence Thompson's perversion to enforce racial segregation and subordination, and to discipline minorities, dissidents, and nonconformists of all stripes. These laws were a fact of the legal landscape. When cases came up, when treatises were written, they were seen as different from most laws for the obvious reasons, but totally legitimate, totally constitutional, and totally necessary. They were also a fact of life for countless Americans. So I'm going to quote just a little bit more. Working-class immigrant families warned their maturing children not to leave home without money that could inoculate them against vagrancy arrests. Early homophile organizations educated their gay and lesbian members about, quote, lewd vagrancy arrests and how to avoid them, quote, wear at least three items of clothing of your own sex was a common refrain. Black newspapers warned their readers that vagrancy arrests were a likely consequence of any racially presumptuous behavior. Civil rights organizations tried to head off seemingly inevitable vagrancy arrests of their workers heading south by providing vagrancy forms that attested to the workers' standing as, quote, reputable members of the community, close quote. The vagrancy law regime then regulated so much more than what is generally considered vagrancy. Vagrancy laws were as versatile as they were common and legally valid. They represented an approach to policing, a vision of society, and for many, an inescapable vulnerability. But then all that changed. Within 20 years of Isidore Edelman's case, what was once legitimate and clearly constitutional becomes illegitimate and clearly unconstitutional. And so the question of my book is, what happened? How did this happen? And a big part of the answer to that question is people like Isidore Edelman, Sam Thompson, and the pie-baking hippies. They begin to fight. Their consciousness gets raised. They join organizations. They have social movements. They find lawyers. The ACLU is growing at this time. The NAACP and the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP are growing at this time. Uh, The War on Poverty in 1965 creates legal services corporations that provide legal services to the poor in large numbers for the first time. Public defender services are proliferating throughout the United States. In addition, judges are becoming increasingly receptive, though the Supreme Court remains hesitant for about 20 years. They take a dozen or so cases, and they can't figure out what to do with them. And like they do in Edelman's case, and like they do in Sam Thompson's case, they dig them, or they narrow them, or they don't answer the real question for 20 years. So by the early 1970s, when another case comes up to the Supreme Court, by that point, lower courts have invalidated vagrancy laws. Lots of police departments have stopped using them because they think they're not constitutional. Some states have repealed them and replaced them with other kinds of laws. And by 1972, it's clear to the Supreme Court as well that these laws have to go. The book tells the story of this downfall, and I'm going to offer you one more quote, and then Claudrine and I will talk. And in the process, it touches on, quote, the major upheavals that convulsed American legal, social, intellectual, cultural, and political life between the 1950s and the 1970s. Those who had long lacked social and political power began to organize, march, and protest, stand fast before fire hoses and riot gear, hire lawyers, and bring appeals. In doing so, they projected a new image of American society in which vagrancy policing was anathema. To them, the cop on the street with the vagrancy law tucked away in his pocket was the pig, the man, the establishment. The language of equality and nonconformity became a mantra, the image of the respected and fulfilled individual, the Holy Grail. Telling the history of vagrancy law's demise thus means telling a legal history of the 1960s writ large. As may already be apparent, the age-old crime of vagrancy became a flashpoint in virtually every great cultural controversy of the time. From sexual freedom to civil rights, from poverty to the politics of criminal justice, from the beats to the hippies, from communism to the Vietnam War, the great issues of the day all collided with with the category of the vagrant. Vagrancy, police power, and the Constitution met on the streets and parade grounds, skid rows and lunch counters, at polite sit-ins, militant protests, and outright riots. Wherever the 60s happened, vagrancy law was there. So I'm going to leave it there for now, and I think Claudine and I will, will take up the conversation, and I look forward to that conversation and to your questions. Thank you.
2: Well, let me start by saying that it is an honor and a privilege to be a part of this uh, conversation about Vagrant Nation. Uh, I think it's an immense contribution to the fields of legal history, uh, African-American studies, as well as carceral studies. And I think if there was any doubt uh, about your status as one of our country's uh, most formidable thinkers, uh, and there should have been no doubt after (laughs) Lost Promise, uh, I think Vagrant Nation should eliminate them all in dramatic fashion. Um, Reading books about police power, uh, the carceral state, is never easy. In fact, uh, sometimes it can tax the spirit and the soul. Um, But to read Vagrant Nation is to know, in many ways, that there is hope in history. And uh, so it it was a joy to read this. And thank you very much. Uh, stories of people like Isidore Edelman uh, and Sam Thompson, ordinary people, regular people, uh, relatively powerless people, uh, are not usual parts of the histories of the Constitution and legal change and I was wondering if you could say talk about or describe the role that these people play in your book and how you approach such history
1: sure so uh Thank you for the kind words, first of all. It's such a pleasure to, to be up here and have you be asking me these questions. I'm honored. Um, so. Much of the way people think about legal history and constitutional history is really from the top down. And especially constitutional history is about the court, right? It's about these nine people. Right now, I think people are thinking a lot about the court, uh, as Justice Scalia's death opens up a, a space on the court. Um, and I, I think, actually, I'm going to show you my cover. So the cover has the court. It's there. Um, but it also has all these regular people. These are Vietnam uh, War veterans who are, are protesting on the steps of the Supreme Court at the very moment when the court is deciding a vagrancy-related case involving Vietnam War protesters, and I think it has a huge effect. Uh, And one of the things, and you can see the police are there too, Uh, one of the things that... Um, has always been important to me in my constitutional history and my legal history is the idea that law doesn't start at the court. Law starts with regular everyday people, and and that means you, uh, right? That means something happens to you in your life, and you think it's a problem and an injury and an injustice, and you think it's the kind of thing that law can do something about. Uh, and and you go to a lawyer or you talk to a, a quasi lawyer or or someone who knows something about the law, and you uh, and you say, I think I have a right here. I think there's, there's something wrong. And then the lawyers act as kind of intermediaries, gatekeepers also, right? The lawyers don't take every case, and right. so they can, they can serve as as barriers to, uh, to people's de- uh, desires in the law, but they often act as, as intermediaries. And then they shape cases, the, the regular people and the lawyers and the scholars and the legislators and the police officers and in terms of what kinds of arguments they make in response. and uh, And once the Supreme Court gets a case, so much has happened, and, and so much has been shaped. And it's not that they don't have power. They have a lot of power. Uh, but they don't have all the power. Uh, and I, I actually think it's really important to start with the regular, everyday people. And I also think, I mean, that's what the law is about, right? And, and so how can, how can you tell that story without talking about people?
0: Yeah.
2: So I'll make a confession. Um, I read this book while I was watching the presidential debate. Uh, <laughs> and I shouldn't have done that. Uh, and it was uh, Clinton and Sanders. And the issue of uh, African-Americans came up. And immediately, both Sanders and Hillary Clinton went to the problem of mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. And I was already annoyed. Um, <laughs> And it was interesting to me that the issue of mass incarceration would be the first thing that Mm -hmm. came up and the only thing that came up in a conversation about African-Americans. And so I turned the TV off and I went back to reading. (laughs) And um, one of the things that I really appreciate about this book is the ways in which you demonstrate how the vagrancy regime cast its net and included all kinds of people. Mm Uh, And so could you talk a little bit about um, how these vagrancy laws have been used in the past and the the different kinds of people across race, across class, when you think about immigrants uh, who've been caught up in this vagrancy regime?
1: Yeah, so I started actually with race. So Mm -hmm. in in Lost Promise, in my first book, one of the things that I uh, talk about a lot is involuntary servitude of African-Americans in the 1940s South, right? People virtually being enslaved. Mm -hmm. And vagrancy laws were used to arrest African-Americans who were no longer working on plantations, who had more economic security than that. Uh, and and they, they were told, no, you have to work. At the pain of punishment, penalty of law, you have to work on a plantation. And I had in the back of my head, as I learned about that use of vacancy laws, the case in 1972, when the court finally strikes down these laws. In that case, there are eight defendants in that case, but four of them are two tall, blonde, white women and two large tall African-American men, and I know this because I have the arrest record, so I have their height and their weight uh, and, and what they look like, and uh, they are out on the town, the four of them, in 1969, Jacksonville, Florida, and they get arrested for vagrancy, and the, the arrest notation says, by prowling by auto, which is not one of the categories of being a vagrant, uh, but no one cares. That's, that's how vagrancy laws work. No one cares that they didn't actually fit the category. They get arrested. They get convicted. They go all the way up through the Florida State courts and they get affirmed, the the convictions get affirmed. But I had that case, which I had read in criminal law, in the back of my head. And I thought, how peculiar that African-Americans who are economically out of place in the 40s get arrested, and African-Americans who are sexually and culturally out of place, as well as the whites with them, get arrested in the 1960s. And I started looking to see how else vagrancy laws were used. And this book took me quite a while to write, longer than I anticipated. And part of it was because of the sheer variety of kinds of people who were arrested. So um, obviously, vagrants are arrested. But who would have thought free speakers would have been arrested? So in the 1930s, these laws are used against labor union organizers, and in the 19th century, against labor union organizers, as well as communists, uh, like Edelman in the 1950s. They're used against Vietnam protesters, Vietnam War protesters in the 60s. They're used against women who are uh, out and about uh, in places where they shouldn't be on their own and seen as sexually promiscuous. Uh, Particularly prostitutes are uh, targeted as women. Uh, Gay men and lesbians are targeted under these so-called lewd vagrancy laws. there's one law that uh, comes out of uh, 19th century New York. It's a law in New York that makes it a crime to uh, masquerade so as to hide your identity. It makes you a vagrant if you masquerade so as to hide your identity. And that was used uh, against people who cross dressed Uh, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s. That was not its purpose at all, but one of the things that vagrancy laws do is they pivot, right? They're hidden. They're flexible. No one has to pass a new law. The police just say, oh, look, here's a new threat, and here's a law that no one's going to look at that we can use uh, to arrest them. And actually, those same laws, the, the masquerading laws, are still on the books, and they got used against Occupy Wall Street uh, members who had masks on uh, uh, just recently. Um, so, uh, and then others uh, uh, are the beats and the hippies. Um, and one of the things that was, was so um, apparent as I wrote this, uh, and also civil rights protesters and leaders. So uh, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who is a major figure in the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, and one of uh, the founders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference with Martin Luther King, a close colleague of King's, He gets arrested uh, while standing on a street corner for just a few seconds talking to some other members of the SCLC during a boycott of department stores in Birmingham. Now, in Birmingham, Bull Connor was the sheriff, an infamous uh, anti-civil rights sheriff. Bull Connor used those same laws 30 years earlier, against Al Capone's Birmingham mobsters. Mm -hmm. He then used those laws in the 40s and the 50s against communists. He said there's not enough room in Birmingham for the communism. And then he turns around and uses it against civil rights leaders. Um, He actually uh, arrested some ministers from Montgomery in 1958 who go to Birmingham to help them with their own bus boycott. And they are sitting in... Uh, Fred Shuttlesworth's house, he is in jail actually for the boycott, but his wife is in the house and they go into the house, they're having lunch, and the police come into the house and arrest these ministers for vagrancy, right? They have jobs, they are pillars of their community, they are in a private place, and they get arrested for vagrancy. So um, African-Americans become, during the 1960s, the paradigm of the protected class in constitutional law. And so one of the things that you see over the course of the the vagrancy law challenge is everybody wants to claim they're just like African-Americans, right? So the hippies say, we're just like African-Americans. And poor people say, we're just like African-Americans. And gay men and lesbians say, we're just like. And everybody wants to get as close to that as they can, because that's who gets judicial sympathy. But the thing that I noticed was it wasn't until the hippies that you got judicial empathy. Right? So the hippies who are the hippies, they're upper middle class, middle class, white kids. The judges who look at these hippies say, this could be my kid, right? This could be my son or my grandson. And it's not until the arrest of the hippies that you really have a watershed. And uh, the hippies' arrests mostly don't end up in convictions. They get thrown out before they get convicted. So the hippies come into court suing as civil rights plaintiffs, saying, we're just like average americans um, And every hippie case all across the country, San Antonio, Texas, Charlotte, North Carolina, Boulder, Colorado, they win. And 1969, one of the lawyers writes, 1969 is the banner year. It's the watershed year. And I actually think you needed both the sympathy for the plight of minorities, plus the empathy with people who looked like the people in power before you actually got real change happening.
2: Where do, law- where do lawyers and judges Play in this story, because they're in this story and they're very important. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, they
1: are. And so one thing that's interesting and and is long been part of the conversation about social history, right? Is the move for history from below uh, and the idea that you want to capture the everyday lives of everyday people. Um, and one and that's certainly something that I want to capture. But it's not where I want to leave it. I actually want to watch those everyday people go through the legal process. Uh, and so the lawyers are the key people who bring them through that process. And there are one of the things that was was troubling to me when I started this book was that there was no single person, no single organization that pushed this, right? So we have in our head the model of Brown, right? We have the model that Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP, you know, they decide school segregation is a problem and they're going to attack it and they do it in a coordinated manner. Um, And in Lost Promise, I talk about how that's not quite the right story, but the outlines are still there. Um, And in this story, there isn't a single organization and there isn't a single lawyer. And that's because these laws are used everywhere. And so they come up in different contexts. So it's different kinds of lawyers who face them. Uh, but that said, right, so people like Robert Bruce Miller, he's the only ACLU lawyer in Boulder, Colorado, and he's the one who takes these cases. That said, being an ACLU lawyer, all that means is he was a member of the ACLU. But it meant that he wrote to the ACLU, the national office, and he said, I've got this vagrancy case. And people at the national office said, oh, there's another one in San Antonio. And there was a related one that went to the court a few years ago. And and they sent him briefs and they sent him information. So there are organizations, especially the ACLU and the Legal Defense Fund, and particular individuals. So there's a guy uh, named Anthony Amsterdam, who I talk about a lot in the book, who was uh, a law professor at NYU, at Penn, at Stanford, and also uh, worked with the NAACP LDF. And he was a real center of networks for this. So when he was a law student, and I tell my law students this all the time, much to their chagrin, when he was a law student, a third year law student, he had to write a major research paper that he forgot about. And he wrote it in about two weeks. Uh, And it became and remains one of the most cited law review articles of all time. And the article was about the void for vagueness doctrine in the law. And the void for vagueness doctrine is a doctrine that says, if laws are too vague, and people don't know what they have to do in order not to be criminals, and the police don't know what to do in order to fairly administer the laws without arbitrariness, without discrimination, then they're unconstitutional. So he writes about that, and vagrancy laws are one example of vague laws in that article. So it comes to the attention of Jack Greenberg, who's the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund after Thurgood Marshall. And he says, I need this guy to help me, because it comes out right around the same time that the sit-ins take off, and that thousands and thousands of civil rights protesters are being arrested in the South for things like vagrancy. So Amsterdam goes to work for Jack Greenberg in the LDF. He writes more articles and he's involved in all these civil rights cases. He's training lawyers and he's flying all around uh, the country. So there are a bunch of people like Amsterdam who are kind of at the center of networks and are the sinews. But it really is the case that regular lawyers, and I like to tell this to my law students too, right? It's not just regular people who make the law happen, but you don't have to be Thurgood Marshall, right? You can be Robert Bruce Miller, who's no slouch, um, but you don't have to be the single guy. You can be the single girl, woman, uh, but, but also you can be one of many who are incrementally building on the work of lots of other lawyers. Um, and, and it's definitely the case that I think judges are less important than most people do. So the judges are important, uh, but I really think so much is created for them in how cases arrive uh, uh, in their courtrooms uh, before they decide them that they're relatively constrained in how they're going to think about an issue before they decide it. Um, That said, the Supreme Court does obviously play an important role uh, in the book, um, and certain judges in particular. But I'll stop talking. And if you want to talk about those particular judges, I'm happy to.
2: What were the major obstacles to the success? Or why didn't this happen sooner?
1: Uh, yeah, so it's funny. I've I mixed feelings about this 20 years, right? Okay. So on the one hand, you think, it took 20 years. That's too long. And on the other hand, you think, this legal regime has been in place for 400 years, right? So 20 years, that's the blink of an eye in historical time. And it's actually really fast. Um, but there were some formidable obstacles. So I would say they, they come in two main flavors. Uh, the first one is that lots of people think that it is the role of the police to maintain social control, right? That there is a place for everyone in the 1950s. That if you're a minority, you belong in a certain place. And, uh, and you shouldn't grow a beard, because that's subversive. And, uh, and you should dress like a lady. And you should dress like a man. And so I think there was a real sense that the world is kind of starting to fall apart. And norms are starting to decay. And you really need the police to shore those up in a big way. But I would say by the late 60s, that argument starts to fall away. And the bigger argument is that the police really need power. Uh, And if you think about the late 1960s, as you know better than I, The world seems like it's falling apart, right? You've got rising crime rates. You've got students protesting and rioting. You've got African-Americans rioting, assassinations, John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, right? It really seems like there's no order, and there's no safety, and there's no security. And so the police and the Supreme Court is adding to that because of its criminal procedure revolution, right? It's giving criminal defendants more power, and the police are getting very upset. And it becomes crime control, especially in all of these things which get wrapped up together, become an issue in national politics in the 1960s for the first time. And the Supreme Court starts to get a lot of heat for its coddling of criminals and its coddling of uh, minorities and students and all these people who think they're entitled to someone, something and, and shouldn't be. And, um, and so the police say, you can't take vagrancy laws away from us because we need to be able to have discretion. And the vagrancy laws give us discretion. And they continue to say that all the way through. And the court, and the courts generally, but especially the Supreme Court, is really worried that, uh, if they take away vagrancy laws, they're going to be tying the hands of the police even more. And in the 1968, in the 1967 term, in the spring of 1968, the court hears the case of Terry v. Ohio, which is the origin of uh, contemporary Terry stop. So stop and frisks that we all know about today start with this case, Terry v. Ohio. And they hear that case and two vagrancy cases, where people who look like they're real criminals get arrested for vagrancy, so one guy He's a law student at Tulane. He goes out for a bite to eat. Late at night in the French Quarter, he happens to resemble a murder suspect the police are looking for. They accost him. They ask to see his arm because the murder suspect has a, a tattoo that says, born to raise hell. Okay, so they they ask this guy to take off his jacket. He says no. He's a law student. He knows his rights. Okay, let this be a caution to us all. Uh, They arrest him for vagrancy because they can't arrest him for murder because they don't have probable cause. Eventually, it becomes clear that he's not their guy. Um, So that case is there and a couple other cases there. And the court, the justices are really thinking, should we give stop and frisk? Should we keep vagrancy? How are we going to give discretion to the police? And at the end of the 1968, um, uh, spring of 1968, They've both given them stop and frisk authority and kept to vagrancy authority because I think they're so scared about tying the hands even more. But then a few years later, when Papa Christou comes up, that's the the double date case, uh, and the year before that, when a couple of other cases come up, the justices actually say to themselves, Justice Blackman, in his papers, he wrote notes to himself, he wrote memos to himself about the cases, which is just amazing. Uh, most justices don't do that. You have to figure out what they mean by uh, other means. And, uh, and he writes a note to himself and he says, well, now that we've given stop and frisk, I think we can take away vagrancy. Uh, and that's what they do, right? They really think we can't take all the power away from the police. And the real problem is, how do you give the police discretion to stop real crime and real criminals while taking away the discretion? for the police to stop people they don't like or people who are minorities or nonconformists or dissidents. And it's not that easy to figure out how to give the right kind of discretion at the right moment.
2: How did you approach that as a writer? Um, quite frankly, sometimes it's hard to write about the police. Um, and it's hard to write about the police state. Uh, and how do you do that? I mean, how do, you, how do you strike that balance when you take away the vagrancy law? Um, but this issue of police power is real. Mm-hmm. You know.
1: Yeah, so I'll answer my question in two ways, right? So the okay. first way is um, when I started this project, mm-hmm. I really thought about it as a project about the people policed by vagrancy laws. And in a lot, in a lot of ways, it's remained that project. Mm-hmm. But uh, my colleagues impressed upon me very early on that the book wasn't going to work and that it wouldn't be true to the world if I didn't try to understand why the police did what they did right, and why they acted the way they acted. And so I read police manuals. And and one of the things you see in these police manuals is they say um, anything different or unusual is suspicious. Anyone who looks like they don't belong is suspicious. And you know what? A lot of the time, that's probably right, right? But it also means you arrest the black man in the white neighborhood. It also means you arrest the white man in the black neighborhood. It also means you arrest the guy who is not dressed the right way, right? So so I understood a lot better, once I started thinking about the police perspective, what they saw as threats and why they saw these various people as threats. And it's not that I necessarily agree with those thoughts, but I think it was really important for me to understand what they felt they were losing by losing vagrancy laws and what they felt vagrancy laws enabled them to do from their professional perspective. But
2: but I also think the cultural logics that inform that, the cultural logics they say, if you look like this, you don't belong here they begin to have a life of their own even after the end of that particular law. Yes, you know, And that's, that's the scary part.
1: Yes. I think that's right. I think that's right. I think, uh, I mean, those cultural logics still mm-hmm. exist today, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so the second, part, the second part of my answer goes, goes right to that, which is I really struggled as I wrote the book. I think the vagrancy law regime, was incredibly pervasive and powerful. And I think that its downfall was a good thing for our society. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really struggled, because it's not everything. (laughs) It's not the end of the story. And you look around today, and you see all kinds of police power and police discretion and police abuse that continues. Right. So I kept asking the question, well, what changed exactly? And what didn't change? And how important is it to get rid of one particular law? And in fact, The the legal actors that I was writing about, the lawyers and the ACLU folks, there's this guy, Ernest Bessig, in the 1950s, who's the head of the ACLU in San Francisco. And he watches as the police arrest the Beats, and gay men and lesbians, and African-Americans, and potential criminals, all under the same vagrancy law. And he's the one who starts to conceptualize what the problem is. But he doesn't think the law is the only problem. Mm -hmm. He says there are two problems. There's this law, and there's the police. And, uh, and, and in his view, police who are opportunistically looking for laws to use find a law eminently usable. Right? This is a roving license to arrest. And, uh, and so in his view, it's a dual problem. And all through the book, I show how that dual problem persists. And yet, the nature of litigation, and this goes to gatekeepers as well as facilitators, Right? the nature of litigation is to distill a question. And so over time, and especially after Terry v. Ohio, the idea that you're going to get anywhere with the police kind of falls away. And the focus becomes these laws. And everyone thinks, you've got to get rid of the laws. And I think you do. But it's not a silver bullet, right? There's no single way to handle this problem. Uh, and I think it's an, an endemic problem. And, and eventually, what I, what I, where I come out is the idea that the end of the vagrancy laws in the, in the way that it happens is important because it shows that this is a constitutional issue. Right? If you had said to some, someone 30 years earlier, vagrants have constitutional rights, they would have laughed at you. Right? And so you've said, this is constitutional. And, and that means anything can be constitutional. right? That's really empowering. And then second, it takes away this resource. Not every resource, right, but this resource from the police and gives a new resource to the people who are powerless. Um, And then third, I think it sets new boundaries, right? There are always going to be debates and conflicts between how police power Gets used and against whom, but it, it creates a new conversation and sets a new set of boundaries. That then, right, just as I think the court isn't the first place, it's not the last place, right? So then everybody goes forward and tries to figure out well, the police say, so what can we do now? And what are the new boundaries? And then people who are subject to the new technologies that they use say, what new rights can we articulate? And how can we protect ourselves? And I actually think that's exactly what you see, right? It's not fast. Um, but Terry v. Ohio says you get the stop and frisk. And what do we have today? We have all this litigation. New York City's not using the stop and frisk anymore because it became apparent that it was being used in really discriminatory ways. So I don't think there's an end of the story and then everything's great. Um, but I do think there are iterations of the story and things do change.
2: What can we learn from the end of these laws? Um, you know, Vincent Harding has this question, is there hope in history? Uh, And and I I have that question for you: Is there hope in history? Is there something that we can learn? Um, And I know no one wants their book to be used as a blueprint. Um,
1: Can I find an answer here? No. Um,
2: I think so, though. But. Yeah, is there hope in history, and what can we learn from this?
1: I think there is hope in history, uh, and and it's funny because as I wrote, people kept saying to me, "You're so optimistic," and right. and I and you know and I don't think of myself as a Pollyanna, you know, and I, I look around the world and I think there are real problems mm-hmm. in the world, um, but but I also I also feel optimism, uh, and you I do. What? I know that, you do. I do! I know, you, I you do. really do. You think I'm a Pollyanna? No, not okay. <laughs>
2: at all. But <laughs> I mean, we've had conversations about the issue of mass incarceration, yeah. and I know there are certain, you, you do feel a certain level of optimism. I do. And, and that's a good
1: thing. <laughs> I, you know, I, I feel some despair, too. Uh, and there were moments in writing this when mm-hmm. I really felt despair, and there are moments when I look around the world today and I feel despair. But I also think... First of all, that empowering people is really important. I think second of all, there are things that we take for granted today that were not taken for granted then. And that doesn't all have to do with policing and the carceral state. Right? It has to do with pluralism and tolerance. And I think we have a much broader conception of what is acceptable behavior and dress and sexuality and, uh, and political, uh, um, political discourse than we had in the 1950s. Um, But I also I also think when I look at the stop and frisk litigation, right? On the one hand I think we're still here, right? We're still discussing this, and on the other hand, I think well the reason we can have the conversation we're having is because when stop and frisk was passed there were recording requirements. You had to document every stop and every fist. That's how we know that it's racially discriminatory. There were no recording requirements for vagrancy, right? It was totally hidden. It was totally ubiquitous. Um, and I think, well, when I one one of the other areas that I think about that sometimes I have despair about, right, is homeless policy. So mm-hmm. people are still being arrested for panhandling. They're still being arrested for sleeping in cars or sleeping on park benches. There's a new challenge right now uh, to Virginia's habitual drunkard law, uh, which, which criminalizes being a habitual drunkard in a similar way to the vagrancy laws. And, um, and I think, how can we still be penalizing poverty? right? How can we still be penalizing homelessness? But then I think, well, look at this new lawsuit. And they're building on the cases of the vagrancy law challenge. And there's a vocabulary to use. Uh, and when a panhandling law gets passed, there are advocates for the homeless who get to say, narrow it or don't pass it or get to advocate. And in the vagrancy law regime, there was no advocacy because there was no transparency, right? So now you have to target particular activities and particular places. And in doing so, city councils and state legislatures have to be more transparent. So I see change. It's not all change, um, but it does it does make me hopeful. And I, I do see places where uh, both the police are more aware of their limitations and regular everyday people are more aware of their rights. You know, And, and the Warren Court, it's often called the rights revolution. And mm-hmm. I think that's true. I think mm-hmm. that's meaningful. I don't think everybody feels that way and I, I don't know how far it gets you all the time. Uh, but I think, it's, I think it's a pretty big deal.
2: I think, and I'm going to open it up, yep. but... I think one big issue or one big difference when I was reading this was the extent to which people saw the problem of these vagrancy laws as across race and across mm-hmm. class. And I'm not so sure in our current conversations about certain issues we think about that, even though they are, mm-hmm. even though if, you know, if every African-American was released from prison right now, we still lead the world in the prison population. Right. You know, it's, we we still would, and so sometimes I'll have a student who'll come to me and talk to me, and you know, a white student, and say, you know, I, you know, you know, I'm white, Professor Harrell, and I never thought about this, and it's like, really, you know, but this this notion that it is a problem that's exclusive mm-hmm. to African Americans, and I think why why this book is so powerful, and I would recommend it to my undergrads, is I think it it tells a, a much more complicated story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree, and I I think actually that one of the reasons that we don't see the kinds of recognition of Mm cross-group commonalities is actually the end of the vagrancy law regime. right? So Mm -hmm. one of the things the vagrancy law regime did was it provided a common target. So it's not the case that all the different groups in the 1960s thought they shared commonalities in every way. It's not that they agreed Mm -hmm. on everything. But here was this law that was used against everyone. And so during the process of challenging the law, they're all assimilating themselves to one another, right? They're building analogies. They're saying, we're like each other. And it's because there was this singular target. And once the once the target goes away, all the energies that were organized toward that target and toward identifying the similarities and the commonalities disperse, right? So now, when you have homeless advocates, the, That's it. Those are the people who are defending the homeless, right? And when you talk about race and criminal justice, you're talking about the race and criminal justice people. And when you talk about gay rights, you're talking about the gay rights people. And so everything splinters. And it's not only the vagrancy laws, right? Because the early 70s is the moment you know, when lots of things splinter, when liberalism starts to splinter and push in different directions and lose its center. Uh, And so I think it's partly a response to that. And it's part of why I'm glad to hear you say that's part of what you love about the book. Because it's part of what drew me to the book mm-hmm. was the ability when we talk about the 60s. You say the 60s, some people have an image in their head mm-hmm. civil rights movement you say the 60s, other people have an image in their head of uh, the hippies and the the counterculture and and the anti-war movement. And one of the things that I wanted to try to do was say it was all of those things, Mm -hmm. and it was cross-cutting, and it was simultaneous. And I do think one of the hopeful things in the book is, can we get back to that place, right, Mm -hmm. where you care about... And a lot of people would say, you know, that what I celebrate as people having space for their own identities is actually the beginning of a negative kind of identity politics that leads to this splintering. And so one of the things I think the book can do is say, actually, identity politics doesn't have to be solipsistic and divisive. Right? Identity politics can also be unifying in in, in important ways.
2: Thank you. I guess we can open it up now.
1: Great.
3: If you could please hold your question
0: until I have the mic in front of you. The listening audience wants to hear the question as much as they do the answer. So hang on one sec. Thank you.
3: Yes, I'm Uri J. Fields. And in the 60s and 70s, I spent uh, a lot of years in Los Angeles. I'm very familiar with the Persian Square because I spent many Sunday evenings sometime on the soapbox myself. (laughs) and sometimes listen to other folks on the soapbox. Uh, I think this is a very important subject, uh, Polish powers. And as Frederick Douglass said, that power never concedes uh, without uh, uh, con- uh, contest. Mm-hmm. In other words, we have to contest. We have to protest. And so I noticed that in your talk, you sort of played down a little bit in conservation and also the fact that it does have a racial component that stands out more than anything else. By virtue of the fact African-Americans with about 12% of the population, having, of course, 47 and sometimes 50% of people in incarceration, you cannot play that down. Those are facts that stand. So I hope you would place more emphasis on the fact that there is a racial component and it is predominant over the hippies, over the women's, over immigration, and everything else. And not only that, it gives the people who have been incarcerated a permanent kind of history. Once you've been arrested as a felon of a vagrancy or whatever, then that goes with you all through your life. It's not like you do your time and you're out. And so that's where we are stuck today. So I think it's going to take vigilance I was involved in the Montgomery Bus Boycott back those years. You talked about Schultz, I and all of that because I helped in the boycott myself at Montgomery. But the fact remains, we succeeded because of direct action. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what you're going to have to have because many of the cases you mentioned, it doesn't happen. The Supreme Court does not respond until the people in the streets really raise up. And so I think this is the time we need more of that action.
1: Thank you. Uh, I agree. I, I, I didn't mean to downplay race. I mean, as Claudrina points out, it Cuts across race, but race is incredibly significant to the story. Uh, and throughout the book, I talk about uh, the use of uh, vagrancy laws, both in the South as an adjunct to Jim Crow uh, and as a really powerful tool during Jim Crow and during uh, the civil rights protests of the 60s. And I also talk about it in crime control in the North and the racialized policing uh, of uh, of African Americans in the North. And 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 I think one of the things that Claudrine and I are are talking talking about is um, that even as there's a racialized component, it, it, it's not all race, right? And that there are ways in which extending beyond race gives more power uh, to the protest, right? And, and then enables the protest uh, to reach a wider audience, to, to, to gain more adherence. But I don't mean to downplay it at all. Lots of the book mm-hmm. is about race. And lots of the book is about uh, racialized policing and, uh, and the use of vagrancy laws against racial minorities. Do you want to add anything?
2: I mean, she, she has a section that talks about vagrancy laws, how they were used against labor activists. And um, I think you know, that is also a part of our history that we can never forget. You know? um, and it's extremely, extremely important.
0: Yeah. I was intrigued with your comment about commonality uh, decreased after the loss of the vagrant uh, the doing away with the vagrancy laws i 'm wondering if you see anything either one of you see anything um, that could bring back that commonality in terms of fighting unjust laws. <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, I do, I do think, right, when you, when, I think mass incarceration, the point that it doesn't only affect uh, African Americans. I think educating people about the fact that uh, these, these are cross-racial problems, I think, uh, you know, after Ferguson, there's been a lot more attention on the use of outstanding arrest warrants, not only against minority communities, even though Ferguson was clearly about a minority community, and I think more people are now becoming aware of that. Um, I actually think, this is the optimist in me, right? I think we have a lot of commonalities, uh, and, I, and I and I think that uh, that becoming aware of them, and, and this goes to Claudrina's early comment about, you know, why is it that during the Democratic Debate when uh, when they talk about race, they talk about criminal justice. When we talk about criminal justice, they talk about race. I think the equation of those two things is a real pity. Uh, uh, much as they are equated in 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 lots of ways, and and much as I think we would do wrong to. Uh, to whitewash the issue. Uh, I, think we, I think we really should be trying to, to educate people um, about who gets affected uh, by various problems and that it is lots of, and, and, and it's not just who gets arrested, right? There are ways, I think, in which we're all affected and we're all implicated, and, uh, and so it doesn't have to just be there's a commonality against everyone arrested or everyone in prison, right? We're all human beings, and we, we should have greater commonalities, greater empathy, with one another than I think we often do.
3: I wonder if you comment, if you went back to the 19th century, a lot of your examples from the 20th, did you see these laws applied with the same indiscriminate uh, ubiquity at that point? Or was it more of a surge that happened in the 20th century as perhaps also sentiments of constitutionality maybe became more prevalent in society?
1: So they're used all the way through American history. You see them in the colonies. They're used uh, 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 in the colonies against the poor. They're used against the Puritans. (laughs) I mean, there are religious uh, minorities who are discriminated, uh, uh, racial minorities discriminated against from the beginning with vagrancy laws. Um, I would say, though, that. In the the 19th century, they are more often than in the 20th century used against either people who are poor and unemployed or against labor activists. Uh, and, and union organizers. Um, so, uh, it, it, well, I say that, but I t- take that back. Uh, in the South, they are used uh, incredibly uh, uh, selectively against free blacks in the antebellum era, and then they're used, m- most American historians who've heard of vagrancy laws have heard of them because after the Civil War, uh, they're used very aggressively against freed African Americans in the South. So um, so I, I do think it, there are beats in the 19th century uh, or hippies, and but uh, but they are used incredibly widely in large numbers, um, if for a slightly maybe a slightly narrower band of uh, of social control issues. But they're used against immigrant groups. They're used um, when strangers come to town. They're you know they're they're still used for both social control and crime control purposes in the 19th century.
3: We have time for one more
0: question. Here you go. What was the discrepancy in the length of time that various groups that were arrested, you were talking about, that had to then spend time incarcerated? Was was there a huge difference in the variation between the groups?
1: So, some of the discrepancy was not uh, among the groups, but among the laws in different places, right? So, in some places, you're talking 30 days in the workhouse or the local jail. In some places, you're talking 180 days in the state prison. Uh, so, um, you know, Isidore Edelman has a nine day trial on his vagrancy law charge. I mean, people get up who had been in Pershing Square who say, I heard Isidore Edelman talk for 800 hours. Uh, and they testify about uh, Isidore Edelman. And, and so that's a serious trial. And it's got serious incarcerating uh, consequences. In many places, vagrancy laws, uh, that there are uh, studies from the 1950s Philadelphia where they show that uh, you're in a police court with a judge who may or may not be legally trained, and they have 60 people file into the courtroom all at once, and the judge says, stand up, and he looks around, and he says, you know, you look like you might have a job. Do you have a job? And the person says, yes, and he lets him go, and he says to the rest, 30 days in the, in the workhouse. That's it. In less than a minute, 60 people are convicted and sentenced uh, for vagrancy. At one point in the Philadelphia workhouse, there are more people, there are more vagrants then people who they have records have been convicted of vagrancy, right? They're not even concerned about the charge. They're not concerned about the proof, and the the sentences are quite short. Um, So that varies across place. That said, it was definitely much more common for whites and middle-class people uh, to have their charges dropped uh, before trial and not to serve any time at all or to serve some time but then, uh, uh, get out before having, uh, served a complete sentence. Um, Fred Shuttlesworth, for example, gets sentenced in Birmingham, uh, Alabama to hard labor for his loitering charge, right? So that's a, that's a very different thing. Um, uh, there's a, a, case, uh, uh, coming out of the, the Cincinnati riots where an African-American man gets sentenced to a much longer period than uh, a white person whose charges get dropped. Um, So there's definitely discrepancies based on uh, who people are. But they're less in just the length of sentence than in the conviction rates themselves.
0: Well, thanks, everyone. Um, I want to give a good round of applause to our speakers.
2: And we've got...